Okay, well, welcome. We're going to be in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. And if you could, so I'm well aware that, um, that this is uh, uh, quarantine season, and even though I wish I could be with you all uh, teaching to you into, in a large group setting, we are not able to. So I usually have a PowerPoint uh, that I use as a visual to work, uh, to work through the passage with, and obviously we don't have that. So um, I would encourage each of you to go get a Bible, to open it up, to get the Bible on your phone, open it up, and turn to Philippians 3. We're going to be in verse 4 so that you can walk through the passage and read it with me and also just have it in front of you at all times as I, as I reference it throughout the talk. So I'll give you some time to go do that. And as you are going to go find a Bible or open up your Bible and figuring out where Philippians 3 is, I will say this, you know, when we as leaders met to pray, you know, we meet every Wednesday uh, during the regular um, year to pray for you guys as students, and we, uh, the thing that I kept putting forward to our leaders this year was that we would pray for you guys, the students, to be happier, that you would experience God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's never-ending, never-pursuing love that He has for you in Jesus, and that would make you a more joyful people, that, that you wouldn't find your joy or your happiness uh, and not uh, have it be dependent upon a particular circumstance, but have it found in a person who is Jesus, who will never leave you or forsake you, so that no matter what, He is with you and for you, and that uh, you would find joy in faith, faith in Christ. And it's no, uh, it's no um, surprise to me that when we pray for joy and pray for contentment and pray for uncircumstantial happiness, that things like coronaviruses pop up and they really challenge and threaten to rob us from our joy. So in light of that, I, I really uh, continually want to pray for you guys and I invite you to pray for me and pray for one another that in this weird season that we are experiencing where people are confined to their homes, where uh, for those of you who are seniors, who are, who are looking at the possibility of graduation being canceled, the possibility of prom being canceled, for those of you who are not seniors but had lots of expectations for the spring, spring sports, spring soccer, whatever it may be, baseball, uh, having those seasons taken from you, uh, this is a little disorienting of a time and I want to encourage you to still fight for joy in this season of, um, of hardship, of, of, of mis-expectation, of whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to continue every week, put before us the joy that is Jesus, that is not built upon circumstances or self-preservation, but a joy that's found in the emptying of oneself, the giving away of our lives to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And today, tonight, or today, uh, or this morning, whenever you find yourself listening to this podcast, to this talk, um, I, I hope that you would see that joy, true joy, is found in not self-preservation, uh, defined by how much you can acquire or have or keep, but that true joy is found in the emptying of self, the giving of one's heart and oneself fully to God and also to those around you, um, your neighbors, uh, whom you seek to love 
as yourself, as it says in the Great Commandment. So with that being said, I want to read us uh, Philippians 3, uh, verses 4 through 9, uh, uh, that speak to us about uh, this self-emptying joy of Jesus. Uh, Let's read together in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just technology and the ability to still uh, be present virtually uh, and, and to continue our series in Philippians virtually so that we can continually each week be challenged to be a more joyful, a more content people. And I pray that uh, through this, uh, through Philippians 3 and the words that follow and the example of Paul, that we would be a more joyful people in this, uh, in this hard season uh, when many circumstances are different than what we may have expected. But God, we know that even though life changes and things happen, uh, that you are never changing and your love for us never changes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, my big question that I want to open with and I want to ask is this is in your life, who are the major people who have impacted you? Who are the people in your life that you can say have shaped you or have changed you or have given themselves to you that have made you the person that you are today? Uh, For me, I think about my parents. Uh, After having two kids of my own, and I've only been a parent for almost four years now, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of self-sacrifice. It takes a lot of dying to oneself for the flourishing of my children. I understand that, and my parents have been doing it now for, I guess, 35 years because they continually help me and serve me and love me. Um, so I think about my parents, how they've given so much of their financial resources, how much, so much of their time, so much of their energy, so much of their effort so that myself and my two brothers uh, can flourish. I think about people who have impacted me um, in my spiritual journey, uh, the men who have been there, uh, whether that they be pastors or Uh, ministry workers or just faithful uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and friends in Christ. I think about a guy who who many of you have heard me talk about named Jason Pierce. We call him Peanut. He uh, was the person who shared the gospel with me for the first time that uh, that became, um, I guess, intelligible um, to me because there were plenty of stepping stones along the way. But when I met Peanut, for some reason, God had done stuff in my life that had made me, uh, given me the ability to listen uh, uh, more to what uh, to spiritual things and who God is, and 
He, he uh, gave so much of his time. He gave so much of his energy. He gave so much of his, um, his resources uh, to go and, be, um, and live in a, in a town called Richmond, Kentucky, and spend time with baseball players who were, were, were sleepy disciples, if you know what that reference is. And he shared the gospel with me and walked me through, taught me how to read the Bible, taught me how to share my faith, taught me how to walk with Jesus uh, in, those, in those early years, and taught me why the church is, is, is a beautiful thing and why I should be a part of it. I think of friends like Mark McLemory, who, uh, if you were at my ordination service, he spoke at my ordination service. He was a, 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 an instrument that God used in a very unique season of my life for me to, for the first time, open up and to be vulnerable and to develop what I call a theology of weakness, that it's okay to be weak. Because like Paul says, for I am weak, I am strong. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. He asked me hard questions about my life, about my story, that other people maybe didn't know how to ask or were too afraid to ask. And he, um, he invited me to new places in my relationship with Jesus. Uh, I think about my good friends like Tony Wells and, and, and others who have been uh, peer influences with me, uh, for me, along the way, who have given me so much uh, that have been there uh, to be a shoulder to cry on, so to speak, in hard times, who have been there to give me uh, loving uh, rebukes uh, when they see how I'm not living up to my confession as a Christian. Uh, there are just so many people in my life that have shaped me, that have, that have emptied themselves so that I may be filled. And my question for you, like I said, is who are those people in your life? And my assumption is that, is that the single unifying characteristic of all those people who have had a major influence on your life is that they gave something up, their time, their resources, their energy, so that you could flourish. Flourish spiritually, flourish relationally, flourish emotionally, flourish physically. The single thread of true life-giving influence is that someone gave up something good so that we could have something good. And that there is a joy, there is a deep joy that is produced when you live a self-emptying life for the sake of others that cannot be matched, that cannot be matched by a life that is defined by the fault, the seeking of the false joy of self-preservation. I'll say that again. There is a joy that is produced through self-emptying that cannot, for, on a forever scale, be more enjoyable than the lie of self-preservation. You know, culturally, and you can see it at a time like we're in right now, where we are experiencing trauma as a culture. I listened to a really good podcast this morning by a guy named Dan Allender, who talked about cultural trauma and how, and how groups of people go through traumatic experiences and how this coronavirus outbreak and now quarantine is, is labeled as a cultural trauma. When we are facing a trauma, tra- a trauma culturally, we are bent to believe that self-preservation is a pathway to survival and a pathway to joy, and that there is no room for self-emptying because we are afraid if we empty ourselves, bad things might happen to us, or we may be left without food or toilet paper, right? Because there's been everybody wants to buy toilet paper. I don't know. But at times like this, we are, we are bent to believe the lie of self-preservation and not the joy of self-emptying. Uh, I, I, uh, my wife, uh, who many of you know, Addie, has a friend who was at Trader Joe's, which is a, you know, is a great uh, um, 
grocery store, among many other things. Uh, and I think there's only one in Cincinnati. It's in the Kenwood area. But anyway, she was at Trader Joe's, and she was in line, and there were two people in line, and one person had like 20 bottles of hand sanitizer, and the other person had zero. And they were like, excuse me, can I have two bottles of your hand sanitizer? And the person with 20 hand sanitizers said, no way. I got these hand sanitizers. They're mine. Right? And that's what I mean by self-preservation, is that, is that we, we, we think that we need 20 hand sanitizers to survive in a current state that we're in, and we can't give any hand sanitizers to anybody else. Uh, we believe that that is the, the mark of, of what it means to survive and to live and not um, uh, to preserve oneself and not to empty oneself is the way to be and to live. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, that sin makes us hardwired to be self-persevering persevering, and not self-emptying. I'm not talking about that we are not to take care of ourselves um, because uh, someone who does not fill themselves up uh, and, and take care of themselves, uh, they, cannot, um, they are not able to empty themselves either. Rather, there is a difference between self-preservation for the love of self and self-care for the love of others. We are filled with the message that to be happy we must have, not give. Even if, and even if at times we are encouraged to give, it's to make us feel better about ourselves, right? It's a very selfish view of philanthropy or goodness. So, so how do you become, where do you find the, the assurance or the confidence to be this kind of a person, this self-emptying person that's, whose life is not defined by self-preservation, but who's defined by self-emptying? Well, that, that comes from Jesus, and it comes by faith in Jesus, in the reality that God is with us, and that He is for us, and that He gives us all good gifts, and that He has given us breath, He has given us resources, He has given us hand sanitizer, not just for ourselves, for personal flourishing, but also to be stewarded for the flourishing of others. Again, there's a big difference between self-preservation for the love of self and self-care that leads to love of others. And I hope that through the example of Paul, uh, we can see this in, in from Philippians 3, 4 through 9. So the big idea is that Jesus is our self-emptying Savior. And because Jesus is our self-emptying Savior, He challenges the proud, or He challenges the self those who self-persevere, or not persevere, who self-preserve. He does that, but He also fills up those who are empty. So the first one in verse, verses 4, we see that he challenges the proud. Verse, verse 4, Paul says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. What, what does Paul mean here by confidence in the flesh? Well, Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was very, 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 very religious. He was the closest thing to a good Christian person as, as, as we could define, right? If those of you who have, have an idea in your head of what a good Christian person is, somebody who reads the Bible every day, goes to church every Sunday, and walks every old lady across the street and gives all their hand sanitizer away. I don't know. Whatever your view of a good Christian person is, Paul is saying that I had all the confidence to be, to be, to be right standing before God in my own way, in my own effort. What Paul is telling us here is that if, as one commentator says, if mere religious efforts could gain anyone acceptance with God, then Paul is at the head of that list. Or to put it another way, if anyone could find salvation through his self-righteousness, right, the ability to stand before God on our own two feet, that was Paul. That's what Paul is telling us in that phrase. And it's true. 
Paul was impressive. He was. He was spiritually impressive. He had an impressive beginning in that it says that he was circumcised on the eighth day in verse 5, which was a requirement that was put forth by the Mosaic law. He had an impressive nationality where he cites himself as being born of the nation of Israel, putting forth the reality that his people that he was a part of are a privileged people who are set apart as God's holy people. He had an impressive lineage in that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And what does that mean? Well, Israel had 12 tribes, and one of the tribes was called Benjamin, and there was a split in the nation of Israel, Israel way back when, and two of those tribes stayed together, and, and 10 left um, King David's uh, descendants and King David's Israel. And the kingdom was divided into two, and those two tribes formed together to become the southern kingdom called Judah, and one of those tribes was Benjamin. So they were on the right side of history, so to speak. He had, Paul, going back to Paul, he had an impressive upbringing by referring to himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews in verse 5. Uh, that is to say he was born of Hebrew parents and was raised according to Hebrew tradition. Uh, he lived with an impressive standard, as, uh, is, and that's what he means by as it's, when it says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee, meaning that he was, co- he was committed to the Old Testament scriptures, and he devoted his life excuse me, to scripture reading and scripture studying. He had an impressive sincerity by saying that he, in verse 6, that as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, meaning that, as one commentator says, he was filled with extreme enthusiasm for what he perceived to be the things of God and extreme enthusiasm to exterminate the things that he perceived to be not of the things of God. And that's what he, why he sought out so zealously to persecute the church and um, how in his conversion story, he was going to persecute Christians where he met the head of the church, Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity who had died on the cross, um, who uh, now met him face to face and challenged him and said, why are you persecuting me? Um, and you know, uh, he also, lastly, he had, a, we read here in this, in this first section, he had an impressive morality. Um, and which means that, uh, and that's what he means when he says that as to righteousness, as to the ability to live out righteously, to live right standing before God, uh, which is in the law, Paul, I was found blameless. Uh, Paul concluded that, that there was, if, if there was a, a straight arrow, somebody who, who lived according to the law, he was that person. So we see here that, that Paul's confidence, his ability to stand before God, was not found in his emptying of self, in his humility, in his, his, his confession before God. God, I can't. I can't save myself. I can't do enough good deeds to earn your love. That's not where he found his security. Rather, he found his confidence and security in his religious resume. And the reason why he cites this stuff as being um, as, um, as a... As a as, um, as blameless and as confidence in the flesh, because we see uh, later, and I believe it's verse 7, uh, we see the word but, right? But uh, Paul points us to, even though I had all these things, they were not fulfilling. Even though I was so bent on self-preservation and being a good Israelite and standing before God on my own two feet, even though I, had all, I was self-preserved, I was empty, and I... Um, I, I um, was not full, I, I was not joyful, 
I was not, um, I was not happy. Um, rather, he was burdened uh, by the law. So what we see here is that Jesus is the self-emptying Savior, and he challenges the proud, and that's what I'm trying to communicate to you, is that, is that Paul was a proud man. He was proud in his heritage. He was proud in his own morality. He was proud in his religious resume. And because of that, what we learn is that God opposes the proud because the proud oppose God. What happens when we come to Jesus by faith and we empty ourselves and say, God, I can't. I can't save myself. I can't, I can't have a religious re- resume that is, that is perfect um, to stand before you. What we realize is that, that true faith, it's the emptying of our own efforts. And it's putting our efforts and our trust in Jesus to say, Jesus, you have paid it all. You, di- you lived the perfect life. You died the sinner's death so that I could, I could have life in your name. In salvation, in faith, there is no room for the proud. There is no room to boast in one's work. There is no room to boast in one's spiritual resume. There is no room to boast in what we have acquired or what we have kept or how we have uh, self-persevered, preserved for ourselves. Rather, it's in the emptying of oneself that we find life and the love of God. There's a great parable in Luke 12 about that's called the parable of the rich fool. And it's about this guy who has a lot of crops, and he says, I got a lot of crops. I'm going to keep all these crops because I had such a good, a good harvest, so I'm going to build more barns to keep all these crops in so that I can keep them and have them, and I can, I can, um, I can have all this stuff. And he keeps all this stuff. And, um, and it says in the parable that, that um, you know, he dies, and, uh, and it says that this night your soul is required of you. And it says that God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and these things you have prepared, whose will they be? And, and then Jesus says, So it is with the one who lays up treasures for himself, it is not rich towards God. What we have here in verse 21 of Luke 12 in the parable of the rich fool is that we have a God's view and understanding of who is somebody that um, is self-emptying and, and who is somebody that is self-preservative, uh, pers- uh, who preserves themselves, um, who participates in self-preservation. Uh, we have the difference between uh, somebody who is rich towards God and who lays up treasures for himself. And what we have here in the life of Paul is we see somebody who went from storing up treasures for himself to emptying out and, fi- and living rich towards God. And that happened not because of some thing that he, um, he did or that he acquired, but because he met Jesus. He met the true Savior, and his, because he met the true Savior, his view of self-salvation and self-preservation was challenged. And he responded correctly, and he emptied himself and said, I no longer look to my own efforts or my own sense of acquiring joy or my own possessions or my own treasures to make me um, uh, saved and righteous before God, but, but faith in the work of Jesus is the source of my salvation. And what we learn here that is, is, is from the parable of the rich fool is that there is a major difference, right, in keeping to love and loving to keep. And that's the difference between somebody who is self-emptying and who, who practices caring for oneself, right? They keep and care to love others. Um, I had a, um, I love to, um, I love to uh, garden, right? And I have a, 
um, a um, watering can. And if I walked around with an empty watering can and tried to fill up and try to water the plants, I would look like a fool, wouldn't I? No, in order to, to water plants, the watering can has to be filled up with water first in order to bless the plants to be, to be watered. And in the same way, that is what it means to, to keep to love versus loving to keep. Is that when we keep to love, when we save money and wisdom so that um, we can have money for a rainy day if our car breaks down, or if we save money uh, for um, and we uh, for our kids, uh, like I'm doing, to go to college one day. That's keeping to love to demonstrate love for my children and to uh, demonstrate love for my wife and for my family, so that we can have a car uh, if if our car dies. Right? That's different than loving to keep and saving money to be noteworthy or to be, um, to be powerful or to have a sense of, of uh, I've made it, right? What we see is that Jesus is our self-emptying Savior, and He challenges the proud. He, he challenges those who love to keep. He challenges those who live self-persevering lives, who, who try to build themselves treasures on earth. Um, and He loves those, and He... He empties himself for those who empty themselves um, and have emptied themselves for him. And that's what we see as we continue our passage in verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Right? For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We see here that, that Paul found life, found joy in the emptying of himself. He suffered the loss of everything, right? And, and, and some of you have, have an everything. And maybe for some of you that everything has been challenged right now because you we're longing for, for, to celebrate uh, the joy of graduation. That meant everything to you, and now you suffer the loss of it. Uh, for some of you, you've been training so hard to run track this spring, and you've, you've had the best training in the winter and early spring that you've ever had, and you're ready to go, and now you're suffering the loss of the track season. Right? Whatever your everything is, what Paul says in Jesus, when we suffer the loss of everything, we actually find everything in Jesus. As we suffer um, the loss of the things that we find our, we think that we find our ultimate joy in, when we lose those things, we actually find a deeper and more meaningful joy in Jesus, the one who will never leave us or forsake us, like I said. Um, and in Him, we can look to um, and love for. You know, um, it, it is, uh, just going back to um, where we're at culturally and how we're in a, a quarantine, uh, and how I'm speaking to an empty room because people can't gather, and we have to um, continue this series online, um, how you guys are not able to go to school anymore, not able to partake in birthday parties, and uh, just simply going to your favorite restaurant to go for, for, to get something to eat, uh, whatever, whatever uh, those things are. We, we are suffering loss right now. And I don't, I don't think that that is something to, to laugh about or to uh, dismiss, so to speak. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, I listened to a great podcast 
on experiencing cultural trauma. And right now we are experiencing a global trauma with this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, there is a particular, particular way of life that we had uh, that was a week or two weeks ago that's been drastically altered to stop the spread of a particular disease. And although there is hope that things will go back to normal, right now there is no guarantee. Is that there, there, there is no sense of what normal is. Some of our favorite restaurants may close down. Some of us may not get back into school until next year. Some of us may not be able to run track the rest of the season. I mean, I was really looking forward to the Reds this year, and they're going to have a really good team. And who knows if the Reds season is going to continue. We don't know. But what we know is that we have this moment. We have this day. And for many of us, we can either, because of this cultural trauma that we are experience, experiencing, we could, we, could either, we could either practice fight, flight, or freeze, right? Flight, fright, or freeze. Either we can, we can flee, right? This, this is the impulse um, to, to just ignore what's happening and to think that everything's normal and everything's okay and that we don't, um, um, you know, everything's going to be fine and everything's just going to go back to normal, which I hope it will. Uh, some of us can fight. We can say that this... this this, this global pandemic isn't going to hold me back, and I'm just going to go do life as normal, and we're going to uh, put others at risk because of our inability to live by faith, and we live by fighting and bucking um, uh, what people tell us to do. And some of us will just freeze. Some of us are so scared that we're so engulfed in fear that we're frozen, that we can't make a decision, that we're stuck, that we don't know what to do. We're scared of what might happen and what might take of us. And there's always a fourth option. And you know what the fourth option is to do in the state of, of, of a cultural trauma? is faith. Faith. It's to walk in faith. It's to push against the impulse to run or to fight or to freeze. The way of faith is to remember that there is a God who is above all and who is with us in all. And that this God is not a God who is distant, a God who is mean, but a God who is good and a God who saves the way of faith is the path of joy, the path of peace, the path of patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, not the path of fighting, flighting, or freezing. Therefore, we must ask ourselves, how can we live as a self-emptying people in this moment in history? And there's a reality that we have to face is that... Um, you know, uh, we, could, we could love people well by putting people in danger. Uh, we could, um, you know, uh, go and, 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 and love people well by putting ourselves in danger. And there are times when Jesus, uh, he emptied himself at the cross. He died for us so that we could have life. But there were also times, like when he heard of, of when John the Baptist was beheaded, that he, he, he um, isolated himself from the crowds in fear that he would be uh, beheaded because he had... His time was not yet come, and he was to uh, die on the cross, not by a crowd. He, he, there are times where he, is, he's, he heals people in crowds. These big crowds of people uh, um, kind of like erupt around him, and he, he, he dips out of the crowd and flees the crowd for what I believe is his safety, right? Because his, his moment of full self-emptying wasn't at that time, but it was down the road. So he practiced, it. He practiced um, self-caring uh, techniques, he cared for himself so that he could accomplish the task that he was called to do in dying for us on the cross. But we are experiencing um, a reality where we're challenged. And how do we love people in this moment? How do we live self-emptying lives in this moment? How do we know when to, when to push in and when to pull back? How do we know 
when to, um, to um, stay in our homes and not see a single person and to re-engage. And, and, and it takes wisdom and, and obviously can't give you a formula uh, because every situation and every uh, thing is different. But there's things that we can do in this time to live self-emptying lights for the sake of others in the glory of God. And that is by checking in on people who we love and we care about, asking how they're doing, um, denying our, our impulse to, to freeze and, and, and um, stay away and embrace the reality that there are family members, that there are friends, that there are those who have, who have um, mental vulnerabilities like depression and anxiety that, that need a friend to call them, to text them, to send a Snapchat to, asking how they're doing. Uh, there are people in our, in our neighborhoods um, that we need to uh, just wave at through the window. I saw my son doing that earlier today. He was just standing in the driveway, uh, raving at his friend Grant, who lives across the street, and they were just waving at each other through the window. And it made my son really, really happy, and it made Grant really, really happy, right? There's not, um, it's, uh, the self-emptying is to fight fear and fight the impulses to, f- to flee or to fight or to freeze and to live a life of faith and, and just see the people around us. See the people that are closest to us and empty ourselves because we know that God is good and that God has a purpose in all these things and that God is with us and that he is for us. So uh, there you have it, uh, Philippians 3, 4 through 9. Uh, what is a self-emptying joy? It's a joy that bucks up against the live self-preservation and that, em- that embraces the reality of the joy of self-emptying. And we don't find our, our, our uh, fuel, our water, so to speak, and our, and our watering cans. It doesn't come from trying hard or doing good, but it comes from resting and looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can walk in this earth as a self-emptying people who care for others and love others well. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his example. Thank you for uh, the self-emptying life that Paul lived that wasn't defined by his own spiritual resume, but that was defined by his confession uh, to you and that you gave him a task to live uh, for your glory and for the good of others that he walked in. And I do pray in this unique cultural season that we would be a people who uh, count all things um, as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And as we have lost so much on so many different ways, that we uh, could lament the loss of those things, but that we would not um, be enslaved by the loss of those things. Instead, that we would embrace, uh, that we can know you more intimately and more fully through experiencing suffering and the loss of things because we identify with your sufferings and how you gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.